Good afternoon. I am Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor here at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the University of Minnesota's School of Public Affairs. And uh, just a couple of announcements to begin with. First, please silence your phones. A lot of our programs are broadcast by the media, including public radio. And I really don't want you to be embarrassed by all of us turning around and staring at you if your phone goes off. So if you can shut them off, that's great. Um, thank you. Uh, I just want to give a kind of a overview of where we're going. We've got a lot of programs coming up in the coming weeks and months, and I just want to briefly mention them. We've had a series over the last four, five, six years on healthcare and health reform. Um, and those of you, I know many of you have been coming to those. There'll be more of those. We've got several in the works. Um, I'm very excited to have Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, those of you who read fiction or interested in um, First Ladies will know her as the, the author of uh, tremendous books about First Ladies, they're fictional accounts. Um, and I've been able to convince uh, Curtis, who's moved to town, uh, to do uh, a sit down. I'm gonna try to get her to do reading from some of her work, but also talk about some of the First Ladies. Um, and of course, my agenda is to talk about the current First Lady. Um, Curtis is not entirely bought onto that, but I think I'm gonna get her there. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, we've had an enormous issue in Minnesota about uh, enduring racial disparities with regards to education, healthcare, and many other uh, core indices of life circumstances. Um, and we've been talking with Sandra Samuels, who um, uh, is the person responsible for the Northside Achievement Zone. And I think we've got an incredible program coming up in the next month or so. Um, we also are talking about putting together a program um, with, um, um, on media bias, um, and you know, we'll have details out about that. One of the luminaries in social sciences is Gary King. Um, there are very few people who are as uh, kind of um, well-regarded in terms of quantitative research, and, and Gary has launched a project called Social Science One which is uh, directed at making Facebook's data publicly available in a way that protects privacy. Now I've got to tell you, this has gotten a lot of attention um, and it's working its way through the various uh, levels. I'm skeptical uh, because I tend to be a privacy absolutist, but Gary is brilliant, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and in the coming months, we've got Vin Weber coming in and talk about conservatism during the Trump era. My colleague Catherine Pearson has got several programs on women in politics. Uh, Brianna Bierschbach will be back talking with legislative leaders and hopefully the governor. And then in the spring, we've got Steve Skoranek and Shanto Yengar, who are two of the leading uh, uh, scholars of American politics um, who I admire and have admired for a long time. Okay, that's a lot. So that's coming attractions. This is like Avengers, like, wow. Um, so I want you to be very excited. At least Avengers for the geeks. Um, okay, well, this is a tremendous program today. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Um, we know a couple things about American politics for sure. One of them is that not everybody participates. And whether it's voting or other forms of political engagement, we see a remarkable uh, unevenness. And that unevenness is tied to race and income and education and other factors. And a lot of the research that's gone on about why is it that Americans don't participate uh, tends to uh, look at the downside um, rather than 
why is it that people participate and what could be done about it? And today's program uh, features a scholar and an activist who asked, how is it that we can uh, work on non-participation to engage people and organize them into politics? Um, and so it's with great excitement that I'm pleased to welcome Hari Han, um, who's currently at the University of California, Santa Barbara, but is moving in the fall to Johns Hopkins University, which is a big coup for Johns Hopkins University. Um, uh, Professor Han is the author of three books um, and a forthcoming book, which is in my series, the University of Chicago, stay tuned for that. Uh, we're excited about that as well. Um, she's also published a number of articles, including in the preeminent um, outlets. Um, one of the really unique features of Professor Han's uh, work is that she blends research with actual community activism. And I think you're going to get a good feel for what that looks like. I think she is quite unique. Um, and moderating and really entering into a conversation with Professor Han is Kara Carlisle, who is at the McKnight Foundation. She's been there since 2017 as vice president of programs focusing on diversity, inclusion, and equity, and community engagement. Before coming to McKnight, um, uh, Ms. Carlisle was, uh, worked at the Kellogg Foundation. And before that, she held various positions in Los Angeles. Please give a very warm welcome to Professor Hahn and Ms. Kara Carlisle. Hopefully I'm doing okay well with the, the mic here. Okay, great. Well, I'm so excited. Uh, we had a, a moment to meet by phone uh, just a couple weeks ago, and it was exciting, and we found out a couple of different things about our personal lives that I thought uh, would be interesting to share as we sure. kick off sort of why we both have engaged so long and so deeply in this topic of engagement, uh, professionally, research-wise, and personally. So maybe I'll start with you and, and have you kick off a little bit about your background and what catapulted you into this field of study. Oh, sure. Um, well, first, let me just sort of say that it's so great to be here today, and I really appreciate everyone taking the time to come out, and um, to Larry and to Mike and everyone who helped organize um, the visit. It's been really great so far. Um, yeah, so how did I get into this work? Um, so I actually, I grew up in Texas, in Houston, Texas, um, as a daughter of Korean immigrants. Um, and my family was very apolitical. Like, it was not something that we talked about at the dinner table. Um, getting involved in community life was just not something that we did. But um, I think one of the ways in which growing up as a child of immigrants really shaped my thinking was that a lot of what I saw growing up was the experience of my parents trying to figure out what it meant to raise a family in the United States. And so, um, you know, they had immigrated to the United States in 1973. I was born here. Um, and, you know, we used to have conversations at the dinner table that were things like, how do um, Americans butter their bread? Like, how do you do it without like getting crumbs everywhere? And do you rip it first or do you not rip it first? And do you slice it or when do you rip? You know, and it was sort of things that like you kind of take for granted if you grew up with it, but if you didn't grow up with it, it's this huge complex thing and that's what we would talk about at the dinner table. And um, I tell that story only because I think what it taught me, which I think is still relevant to the work that I do today, is that transformation is not only possible, but it's a way of life, right? It's what we do as humans. We try to transform ourselves so that we can transform our families and the world around us. And I think that the experience of watching my parents kind of pick up and uproot 
uproot themselves, move them to the United States, and then you know, raise a family here, um, taught me that that's just sort of a part of what we do. And so I think it's really no accident that a lot of what I study is about um, organizing, it's about movement building, um, because I got involved in, or sort of first discovered that kind of work when I got involved in student activism in college. And I think it made a lot of sense to me because at the core of what makes social movements work is this idea of transformation. And that's what makes social movements different from other forms of social change because they're fundamentally trying to work by getting people to sort of transform what they think is possible, you know, so that they can begin to sort of change things. Well, thank you very much for sharing. And I should also say thank you uh, to Larry, to Lee, uh, to Kate, and also to Mike for the invitation here. And I forgot that there are gonna be note cards that you can actually write down questions. And so as you have really difficult questions, she's told me uh, you know, beforehand she can take any questions. So um, <laughs> if you have questions, please feel free to start writing those down as we talk and then um, we'll walk through those um, the second half of our discussion. Great. So um, what was interesting about our stories as we were talking is that I was adopted and I know I moved here just two years ago to Minnesota, but that's uh, part of the history of this state. But I actually moved to Los Angeles and into the heart of Koreatown. And in the early 90s, um, 1992 in particular, was Saigu, which is 429, which was for locals uh, a lot of different things. So some of them um, described it as the LA riots. Some mm -hmm. of them talked about Rodney King specifically. Some talked about it as a LA civil unrest. And so having my background, having grown up in a multiracial black, white, and Korean mm -hmm. family, um, I went to LA both to understand my own identity as a Korean American and also to understand uh, the community and that, and that experience. And so it's interesting because I think we probably know some of the same people I'm in the sure field in, yeah. that, in that moment, um, having spent about 10 years working in immigrant communities, was this moment when you had a whole bunch of immigrants that came after 65 in the Immigration Act and they came in as merchants, as a lot of immigrants do. They don't speak the language. Um, isolated, um, you know, basically there are only a few places that you can afford or are welcome to run businesses. And then you walk into, and in this case, before that, before 92, as I understand it, and from spending so much time in communities, you had these enclaves of folks who really were able to have a way of life, businesses, churches, religious organizations. Um, but when, when, the, when the unrest happened, you hear these stories, and I heard these stories of adults at that time saying, you had guns, um, all over the place, the police really didn't respond. Mm -hmm. They protected the suburbs and the wealthy areas. And it was for the first time, and Edward Chang, you may know, who talked mm -hmm. a lot about and has spoken and written a lot about this experience, was the first time that this community began to call themselves Korean Americans mm -hmm. and began to say, we actually need to lead and be part of social change because if not, we're really, we're really uh, forgotten, mm -hmm. and there's no one that will speak for us. And so that really shaped a lot of my early interest in watching that along with African-American communities, Jewish communities, and others begin to think about how do you organize, what is power, what is leadership, uh, and what what impact can that have over time? Yeah. And, and a, lot of, a lot of disappointments, I would say, sure. and a lot of different um, strategies. And so um, I come to this conversation really excited about the ways that you've been able to observe patterns yeah. um, in civic life. And so as we dive into this mm -hmm. um, and shifting from the personal, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit to ground us all in as we think about civic organizations or civic life. Sure. How would you describe that for everybody here so we can start with the same definition and then we'll, we'll sort of narrow from there. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, so one of the, 
um, you know, like I said, I came to pol I came to politics late. I didn't grow up in a family that sort of assumed that political activity or civic life would be something that we'd be a part of. But um, as I got into it, I think one of the things that I appreciated is, is this idea that, like, you know, democracy has never been a spectator sport, right? So from the very earliest days um, of American democracy, there's always been this idea that, like, we are going to engage people. And so I really think of civic life as being the public spaces you know, through which we begin, people get pulled into public life and begin to learn how to exercise their voice in the political process, you know. And, um, you know, when I think about sort of civic associations or civic life, I think nowadays a lot of times people think about um, certain parts of that process but not the whole part of the process. So what do I mean by that? Um, I think that like what it means for democracy to not be a spectator sport is the idea that like we are not just consumers of democracy in the same way that we're consumers of cereal, you know, mm -hmm. or ketchup or bread or you know any of these other things. Like, you know, we the effort of trying to build civic life is the effort of trying to sort of move people from being mere consumers up to being agents within it. You know, it's a sort of the process of sort of helping them learn the sort of skills and the capacities and the sort of um, practices that they need to be able to be agents of, you know, exercising their own voice in the political system. And so that's sort of the challenge, I think, in a lot of ways. And so the question is, what are the spaces through which that kind of work happens? And I think, you know, there's a real broad range. It can be everything from, you know, soccer clubs and garden clubs and things like that to sort of more, you know, explicitly political organizations. But there's a sort of range of skills and capacities that we want people to develop to be able to be agents in that way. So um, as you've just captured very well, yeah. um, there are different varieties of engagement and oftentimes we get really lost in trying to understand the multiple ways that people think about engagement. Is it volunteerism? Is it being part of a faith community? Is it PTA? And so one of the things that I really like is that you've actually been able to observe um, and actually create from patterns that you see repeated in lots of different kinds of organizations a continuum of how people think about engagement from mm -hmm. low engagement to high engagement. So. Um, I think it's really helpful for me as I looked at it, oh, this is a really great way to be able to identify and pattern spot. And uh -huh. so I'd love for you to talk a little bit sure. about sort of what that looks like. And then you have some pretty interesting terminology yeah. that I, I think is pretty memorable. So we'll get to that in a second. But if you could start with the engagement continuum, and, and then we'll walk from yeah. there. Yeah, so maybe, um, so I think some of the research that you're talking about is um, some research that I did kind of in the mid, I sort of started in the mid um, 2000s or something like that. and. And I'll talk a little bit about sort of how it got, how I was motivated. Is so I remember um, it was um, it was in the it was like two thousand six seven eight somewhere in that in that range. And I was thinking about you know what I wanted to take on is I just finished one project and what I wanted to take on is my next project. And I was sort of looking around and I saw that there was this like funny paradox kind of out in the world, right? And so here's the paradox. On the one hand, it felt like it was easier than ever before to get people engaged in public life. You know, so we had stories about all these like viral. Um, you know, um, um, outbursts of activity that were emerging all over the world. So this is everything from, I don't know if you all remember, like Trayvon Martin, which was sort of one of the early kind of like viral sort of uprisings um, in the United States, to the Arab Spring, you know, where it felt like, you know, gosh, with a Twitter handle and a couple Google Docs, you're able to get hundreds of thousands of people out into Tahrir Square, you know, to topple the Mubarak regime. And so there was sort of this like outcry of like all this activity that was going on. But on the other hand, even as I was, um, even as we were observing that, and when I was talking to friends and colleagues who were working on the front lines, a lot of this, 
they were saying that they felt more powerless than ever before, you know? And so that's the paradox that seems sort of interesting to me. Like, how is it that on the one hand, it seems like it's easier than ever before to get people involved, but on the other hand, the people who are doing the work of getting people involved are feeling more powerless than ever before. And so the work that I was trying to do and trying to differentiate the different kinds of participation in a way was really trying to speak to that paradox and try to understand how is it that um, what differentiates organizations that get people involved in ways that, you know, help realize the kind of power and the sort of voice that they're trying to develop versus organizations that don't. And so um, that's sort of where, um, you know, that's sort of like what originated the conversation or, or the, the research. And so, you know, I ended up going out and, and doing this study with a bunch of organizations across the U.S. where I was trying to look at organizations, some of which were really good at engaging people in sustained action over time, and some of which weren't. weren't but they were working on similar issue areas and in similar communities, and what made it, made it different. And that's where I sort of I began to kind of unpack some of the strategies that they use. So I, I think it would be helpful to walk through these three categories, yeah. and I imagine that people here, as we hear them, will be able to say, oh, I have been part of maybe all three of them yeah. in some way, or, or I've been a leader in or a participant in any one of these. And so, um, so the first one is Lone Wolf. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about uh, Lone Wolf, um, sure. Lone Wolves? So I, I first got involved in um, an activism in college, um, and I will say I was a lone wolf, as <laughs> with like a lot of student organizations that I see. So, um, so one of the so you know in doing this research with these different organizations, I began to sort of develop these kind of like three types of different sort of um, kind of activists and leaders that we saw. And so one of them, which is probably the easiest to kind of pull out, is the lone wolf. And so this is the person who basically takes on all the work themselves. You know, this is the person who's kind of a super volunteer, but they're not sharing that work with anyone around them. They become, um, you know, the organizations that I was looking at did a lot of work on environmental issues. And so these are the ones that become like the, the expert on public management of forests in their community. And they go to every public hearing and they show up for every event and they have long detailed briefings. But the strategy for change is really about mastery of information. You know, it's not really about sort of engaging other people, you know, but it's through the kind of sheer force of their expertise that they're able to sort of get the ruling that they want on, on public activity on, uh, on a public lands hearing or, or something like that. But the limits of that begin to emerge when, you know, the information is not enough to sort of shift the decisions in the ways that they, that they want. Um, and then the other two categories are really about categories where people are trying to engage others in activity with them. But what I found was that there are really sort of two different ways in which they engage them. And so um, maybe I'll start by telling you a story to try to exemplify what the difference is. So there's a story about, I feel like I should be this guy's agent because I tell this story about him all the time. But there's um, a guy named Alex Waters. I don't know if anyone has heard of him. Um, but Alex Waters was, um, he, he grew up in the Midwest. I don't know where, I'm sorry. But he went to college in Iowa. And he went to college thinking that he was going to be a professional golfer. So he had gone to school thinking he was going to be a professional athlete. And he goes off to college. And then one year during his freshman, one weekend during his freshman year, a friend of his says, hey, you know, a bunch of us are going to go to my parents' house, you know, this, like, lake house, you know, out in the country. Do you want to join us? And he's like, sure. Like, why wouldn't I? So he goes off with his friends to this um, lake house. And they're hanging out one night. And he's sort of standing at the end of the dock talking to some other friends. And it's a little bit windy. He's got his favorite baseball cap on. And the wind comes by and it blows the cap off his head. So he's like, shoot, you know, there's my cap. It's floating away in the river or in the, in the lake. You know, and he tries to think, what, is he, what does he want to do? And he thinks, you know, I really don't want to lose that cap. I've broken it in just right for my head. So I'm going <laughs> to dive in and I'm going to get it. 
Okay, so he dives in thinking the water's about 18 feet deep, and it's not. It's about 18 inches deep, so it's much more shallow than he thought. I know, everyone's cringing, right? So he, he breaks his spinal cord. He's life-flighted out of there. He's, you know, he's, para, he's quadriplegic, and so his life changes dramatically, right? He has great medical care. He goes home. He rehabilitates for a few years, and then fast forward, and he's back in college. But his dreams of becoming a professional golfer are over, right? So he's trying to figure out what he wants to do, and he's getting involved in different kind of, like, community organizations and things like that. Um, on campus, and along, this is around 2007, along comes a guy named Barack Obama who's running for president, and he really likes Barack Obama. So he gets involved in his campaign, and you fast forward a few months, and the campaign reaches out and tries to engage him to hire him as a field organizer, right? And they say, hey, you know, Alex, we want you to, to become like a paid field organizer with our campaign. And Alex says, gosh, you know, like, I love your guy and I really want him to win, but like, are you guys crazy? I can't be a field organizer. And they say, why not? And he's like, I can't do any of the things that field organizers do, right? I can't walk a neighborhood. I can't knock on doors. I can't dial phone numbers to make calls. I can't even get the paper off the printer to get my call sheet. You know, like I can't do any of these kinds of things. And what the Obama campaign says is, you know, Alex, you're thinking about a traditional campaign, right, where what the field organizers do essentially is they're just voter contact machines, right, where, you know, campaigns hire a bunch of 22-year-olds, then they work them to the bone, you know, for three or six months or however many months, you know, and just have them talk to as many voters as humanly possible to try to get them to support the candidate. And we're running a different kind of campaign here. If you're a paid organizer with us, what you're going to do is you're not going to be a voter contact machine, but your job is to identify people who live in the communities that you're trying to organize, right, residents who live in that community, and then develop their leadership, right? So help them become advocates and leaders for then Senator Obama, you know, so that it's neighbors talking to neighbors who then begin to um, reach out, do the outreach to their campaign. So you're not doing the voter outreach, you're doing the leadership development, you know, of these other people. And so Alex goes on to become a paid organizer in both the 2008 and 2012 Obama campaigns. And just by looking at sheer numbers, he's one of the most productive organizers that the campaign has. Because it turns out that he could not, you know, get call sheets and make phone calls and knock on doors. But he was really good at, develop, at inspiring and developing the leadership of others. And so I tell that story only because the difference between what Alex thought he was going to do and what he ended up doing was really the difference between what I, what I call in the... Um, in the work, the difference between sort of mobilizing and organizing, right? Which is, it's not my term, just to be clear. <laughs> this is like a term that's sort of um, out there with a lot of organizations, and I'm sure organizations that some of you have worked with, where, you know, with mobilizing, the strategy is, is breath, right? You're trying to get as many people as possible to take action, right? And so you, that's, that's when you hire the people who are just the voter contact machines or something like that. Right. With organizing, the strategy is depth right, so that you want to try to engage people and develop the capacities and the commitments that they need to be able to develop other people, you know, sort of in action. And what I found is that the organizations that were the most effective at, at sustaining engagement over time did both, right, because you need both the, the, the breadth and the depth to be able to sort of sustain the work. But they needed to be really, really clear about the difference so that sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a moment for organizing and sometimes it's a moment for mobilizing, but you had to sort of be clear about the difference between those because they had different implications for what kind of asks you would make of people, how you design the tasks that you're you know, asking people to do, how you structure the leadership or something like that. So. Well, great. So lone wolves, mobilizers, and organizers. Right. And so, so what's interesting having probably been all of those things myself in different in different times is 
trying to think about sort of the moment of now, mm-hmm. um, where I would say over the past few years, there have been more and more conversations in every field around our democracy and around what we need to bridge difference and what we need to, to bridge divides and looking at data here in Minnesota and, and all around the country and the world around disparities as Larry started our conversation around um, different types of power. And one of the things that struck me um, in your book, um, this book, (laughs) How Organizers Develop, How Organizations Develop Activists, is really a quote um, by another political scientist around incentives. And Mm -hmm. so um, there are lots of different ways we talk about elites, um, and there have been a lot of different ways that's been politicized um, and complicated in the public realm. But one of the points that was made is that when you want to create change, you have to organize people if you don't have power. And elites by contrast, actually need to be incentivized right. to engage, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I'd love to, to hear you talk a little bit about this moment where you have, it seems from lots of indicators, mm-hmm. people with all different kinds of backgrounds and different kinds of power trying to figure out how do we begin to move forward a country that feels by, in lots of places, um, really divided and polarized um, yeah. and not wanting to stay stuck. So yeah. It's a big question. <laughs> so um, let me start the story again and then um, kind of like see. So um, one of the organizations that I'm doing work with right now, um, which I'm um, sort of fascinated by, is this big church in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, um, you know, Cincinnati's in southern Ohio. This is a huge church. They get about 38,000 people per weekend through the church. So it's the fourth largest church in the United States by absolute size. It's the fastest growing church in the U.S. Um, and their congregation comes mostly from Ohio, Southern Ohio and Northern Kentucky, right? And um, so it's an, it's an evangelical church um, by all markers. They're sort of like a pro-life, you know, kind of conservative church. And I got to know them because they're doing really interesting work on, um, this is their language, on racial reconciliation, right? So the ch- right now, if you look at the data on churches, um, or a lot of civic institutions in American life, they're getting increasingly homogenous, right? So you have more and more churches that are becoming all white or all black or whatever. Um, same with our organizations, right? Like a lot of the sort of civic organizations that we're a part of are more and more homogenous by um, race, like all sorts of other divides that you might see. And this, in this church, it's, it's 80% white, it's 20% black, um, you know, that, which kind of reflects the demographics in, in that area. And um, Cincinnati had, there was a shooting of an unarmed black man in Cincinnati a couple years ago. And there's um, one of the head pastors in the church is um, African-American. And he stood up on stage in the middle of this controversy. And he said, you know, I feel like I'm being called to be a voice of racial reconciliation in Cincinnati. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but if you want to join me, let me know, you know. And so he thought he'd get like two emails or something like that and they'd have coffee, (laughs) you know. And he had thousands of people email him saying, like, we, we want to do something. We want to figure it out. And so they ended up developing this whole program that they call Undivided. That's um, where they've taken, so far they've taken about 15% of their church, their congregation through it, where it's about sort of engaging people in conversations around race and how you bridge across difference and, and things like that. And so um, the reason that I bring this up in the context of the question that you asked is one of the things that I've learned from working with them is the power of what they were able to do because they had this congregation that was so committed to each other. You know, so in this program, Undivided, they're bringing together people who are black and white. They're bringing together people who have very 
um, strong left, traditionally left views on race and strong traditionally right views on race. You know, and they're putting them into conversation with each other. They take them through a six-week program, and the last week of the program, um, you're, you're assigned to a small group, and you have dinner at someone's house. And the reason why they ended with that is because they realized that when they first started the program, something like three-quarters of the people who were in the program had never had a person of the opposite race in their home. You know, that like, there might be, we might see each other in workplaces, we might see each other at the grocery store, you know, like different things like that. But to have invited someone to, to share a meal in your own home with someone of the opposite race was an experience that a lot of people hadn't had. And so they had this six-week program sort of end with like this meal in, in someone's home. But um, anyways, but, but the, so the part of what I, part of the research that my students and I are doing is trying to understand how is it that they're able to sort of, in the Rust Belt of Ohio, which is not, you know, the People's Republic of Berkeley or something like that, you know, how is it that they're able to sort of take people through this journey that is so contrary to everything else that, that we're seeing? And what it is is that this church gets 38,000 people per weekend, but everyone in the church is enmeshed in this, like, very deep, lattice work of relationships with each other, you know? So even though I'm one of 38,000, I'm connected to, every single person in that community is connected to somebody else, you know? And, and so it's that, it's the power of those relationships and that commitment to community that's able to, that they're then able to use to sort of move people, you know, to sort of a different place on, on issues that they, do, that they um, that they don't necessarily kind of agree on or something like that. And they have this whole idea um, about the idea of what they call the radical middle, right? And um, kind of the, the, the premise that they're sort of work, working off of is the idea that, like, there's a hunger out there right now for the radical middle. And so what is the radical middle? Um, the word, they use the word radical because, you know, we normally think of radical as being, like, extreme, you know? Like, it's the sort of crazies on the left or the crazies on the right that are, are sort of the radicals. But the root word of radical is actually, actually, this is on the root word of radical, is actually rootedness, right? And so, you know, if you, I'm, I'm, I don't speak ancient languages, but if you do, <laughs> then apparently the, you know, the Greek or Latin root of the word radical means to be you know, is to means to be deeply rooted. And so the reason why radical change means wholesale change is because you're sort of you're making change from the root up. Do you see what I'm saying? And in their idea, the idea is that the radical middle are people who are rooted in relationship, right? And the middle is not necessarily an ideological middle, but it's a bridge, you know, across difference. And so, you know, that's the sort of like kind of idea that they're trying to find. And so, you know, to just, just kind of to get to your question, like when I um, think back to this, this moment that we're in, I feel like so many of the civic institutions that we have um, have gotten us to a place where we're much more accustomed to sort of the transactional kind of mobilizing than we are to sort of the more transformational work of organizing. And so we've lost that rootedness. You know, because all of the commitments that we're drawn in by are commitments to issues or candidates or things that are sort of more fleeting than the relationships that we have to our neighbors, you know, that sort of last from campaign, you know, beyond sort of any one campaign or anything like that. And so it makes it really hard to sort of do the work of building across difference that, you know, is so urgently needed, I think, in a lot of the, the, the challenges that we face right now. Yeah, the transaction versus transformational, which is one of the topics that is pretty common among organizers here in the Twin Cities, um, having been at a lot of conversations about what should we do? Should we 
organize in this next election or should we build relationships and really try to understand and shift our models of who we are and how we understand one another and how we really go to the root of inequities um, and different types of power. Right. And, and it becomes a pretty, pretty intense conversation where the debate um, doesn't always flow in the same direction depending on who's in the room. Right. Um, and so I think that there have been efforts consistently over time where people have been engaged in transformational work. Yep. And it's also very hard to sustain because it is a very different mental model for a lot of the way that our civic cycles have been really designed. Absolutely. Uh, and so can you speak to a little bit of what you see happening in your research and across the country that gives you hope about um, ways that people have been long, for a long period of time really looking at transformation and begun to see outcomes and other ways where you think we still have new questions or new ways to, yeah. to think as leaders and yeah. volunteers? So, um, so one of my favorite quotes is from, um, uh, um, there's a Jewish theologian who has this idea where he sort of says, you know, hope is belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable, right? And, um, and I think about that a lot in democracy because in a lot of ways, the premise of democracy, right, is that we can make the possible more plausible, right? That like, you know, there's, there's um, you know, decades and decades and decades of social science research that sort of shows if people if left to their own devices, people are selfish and we're self-interested and we tend to sort of want to be around other people who are like us and, you know, just sort of all the things that are kind of like, you know, anti sort of the transformational kind of stuff that we're, that we're talking about. And the promise of democracy is that, you know, by building kind of civic and small d democratic institutions that sort of help people realize they're better angels, right? That we can kind of build a different kind of society and a different kind of world than, than, than what we have, right? And so the question is, is that where, where is that promise, you know, right now? And um, I think that, um, you know, so like one of the things that I, I think about is that um, I think that there's, uh, I see this in my students all the time. I see this in the sort of, you know, in different organizations that I'm working with. I think people actually have a hunger for meaningful, more meaningful ways to engage in public life. I think there are a lot of people who look around right now and say, this system is not working for me, right? But we don't really know what the alternatives are, you know? And so in that sense, it's almost like, it's a quote unquote like supply side problem as opposed to a demand side problem is that like, we don't really have the institutions that are sort of doing the, the transformational work of sort of um, engaging people and building their capacities in ways that help them realize the sort of plausibility of the possible as opposed to just the necessity of the probable. And so um, the hope for me kind of lies in the fact that I do see organizations out there that are doing that, you know? So it's sort of like, you know, this, 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 this church in Ohio is doing it like on, on one dimension, you know? In Minnesota, I think there are a lot of, you know, organizations that are doing really good work in sort of helping people kind of realize a different vision of what it means for them to kind of be their own agent, um, you know, of social change, and then sort of creating vehicles around that for people to be able to kind of realize, realize the reality of that. But, um, you know, it's almost like un until we can imagine or understand what the alternative is, we can't sort of work to make it possible. And so part of what we have to do is, is you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's a sort of tacking back and forth between what's possible and what's, what's kind of common right now, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think this concept of um, authentic co-creation and um, 
I was convinced years ago that you know I really love the name, but um, you know how how do we how do we begin to think about um, so the next the next iteration of what it means to be American, right? Mm-hmm. This identity that um, that is multi ethnic, multiracial, multireligious, and for lots of the country and lots of towns, there's just not been a lot of transformational relationship to even imagine that outside of a political party um, uh, or a particular issue, but who we are and who we're becoming. And so how do you, how do you do that together when who we're becoming has not yet, has not yet emerged um, um, in a coherent way? So, so before I get too philosophical, um, um, I'm going to shift to some questions here and um, from the audience. So let me, let me start with this one. Uh, could you speak a bit about organizing around a positive message? So this sort of builds on a little bit about what we're talking about, about what we're for versus organizing around a negative message about what we're against. Um, it's, and this person said that we seem to be seeing a lot of the latter, but people are hungry for the former. So this really ties into to this yeah. last conversation. So um, one of my mentors is a guy named Marshall Gans, who was a longtime um, organizer of the civil rights movement, the migrant farm workers movement. He now teaches organizing at Harvard. And he has this line where he sort of talks about the fact that, like, you know, most, or he's, I think he says every, I use it, I say most because I'm always a little bit cautious because I'm a social scientist. But, um, <laughs> you know, but almost every kind of, like, you know, social movement that we've seen around the world has been led by young people. And the reason why is because young people come of age with what he calls a critical eye and a hopeful heart, you know, that they, and I, I, I love that phrase, that phrase always sort of, sort of sits with me, right, because they, they're young, and so they're, cri- as, as I'm learning with my own children, yeah, they're very critical of what us adults do, you know, but, but they're not jaded, right, they have hope that there's like a different, a different kind of um, world in front of them, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, I kind of, um, you know, this question about sort of, you know, like when you're when you're organizing people, I think what a lot of the research shows around the sort of role of kind of these kind of narratives in um, campaigns is that it's the juxtaposition of the critical eye and the hopeful heart, right? You have to have, it's the juxtaposition of what's the critique and the problem that we're trying to solve so that people understand like why they're being called to action. But you also have to have a path, a plausible pathway for hope, you know? And I think that's where a lot of, campaigns that I see struggle right now because the pathways often, it's, it's not, um, it's often not that plausible or it feels implausible to the people. It's sort of like, you know, it's, in some cases it's like rested on a candidate, you know, let's get this person elected and then they will be our savior of all things, right? And which is like <laughs> no candidate is ever going to be our savior, right? Or it's, you know, if, if we get 100,000 people out, then like everything's going to change, which like a lot of evidence shows that it's not. And I think people are really skeptical of those kinds of things. And so, you know, the, the movements that we've seen in the past that have been most successful have sort of like are able to kind of balance that sort of vision with pragmatism in a way that sort of creates a sort of pathway, you know, that gives people um, a sense that, you know, I actually do want to give up my Thursday evening to show up because, like, this feels like it could actually make a difference, right? Like, people have to ha- understand that. And so, you know, so it's kind of the, the, the juxtaposition of those two things, I think, that, um, that um, make a difference. So, so uh, the next one. So has your research examined the professionalization of community organizing and activism by community-based organizations? And then are there good examples of trainings or development for both leaders and staff? So two-part question. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, so not, I mean, I draw. So I haven't necessarily done a lot of this research, but certainly there's a lot of great research from um, people out there. Um, there's a woman named Theda Scotchpole who wrote this great book called D Democracy Diminished, where she um, looks at the sort of professionalization of the sort of civic sector over time. Um, there's another book called Building a Business of Politics that looks at the rise of sort of um, consulting and how it sort of began, to, like political consulting and how it began to sort of dominate our political system. But um, you know what's sort of common across all these is that um, you know in the in the sort of late 20th century, a lot of what we've seen is the the rise of these like professional. Um, you know, like, like our civic, our civil society has begun to be, to be run by sort of paid staff. You know, mm -hmm. and the challenge with that, there's nothing wrong with professionalization, and and I, I you know, that there's a lot of good things about it, which I'm happy to talk about too. But the challenge with it is that when you have this professionalization of the civic sector, it's that a lot of the staff who are running these organizations are accountable to their donors or accountable to their board, as opposed to being accountable to their constituencies, you know? And so it sort of shifted, and this is why I think of it as a quote unquote supply side problem. It's kind of shifted the kind of organizations that we have, because you have more organizations that are accountable to, you know, donors and boards and, and other kinds of things, and they are accountable to sort of constituencies. And so you don't have as many spaces for people to kind of exercise a sort of voice in, hey, like, you're not speaking for me, or, or like those kind of, spaces. And so the challenge, I think, is to sort of create organizations that hold the tension between all the benefits of professionalization, right? Like it's good to have organizations that are run and managed professionally that are sort of, you know, that um, ha have all the tools of, of professional organization, but that are also grounded in constituency. And I, so a lot of what I've been thinking about is sort of the importance of creating these kind of self-governing organizations that are accountable to the people that they're hoping to um, stand with as opposed to, you know, the people who give them financial support or something like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> a very live topic in the field. Very good point. Yeah. So a, a slightly different take, but also on the organizing. So when have you seen organizing involving civil disobedience? Um, example, blocking highways. Um, and when have they been effective, and, and when have they not, and why? Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I have a seven-year-old son, <laughs> and I remember he came home from school um, like a year or so ago, and he's like, have you heard of this person named Rosa Parks? I'm like, yeah, I've heard of her, you know? <laughs> like, we just learned about her in school today, you know? And she, um, you know, she didn't want to sit in the back of the bus, and so she sat in the front, and then she got arrested, and then they had this, like, boycott, and then they, they integrated the buses, you know? And, you know, very familiar story, of course. And so, you know, but the, the story, the way that he got, that the way it was taught for him is that, like, there was this, like, act of civil disobedience, right? And then the bus company's like, oh, man, you know, we're going to integrate the buses, right? But <laughs> the thing that we forget, you know, is the Montgomery bus boycott lasted for, like, 390 days, you know? It's a really long time, right? It's it's more than a year. For more than a year, you had people who, under the threat of losing their jobs, right, under great sort of like economic distress, right, and social approbation, we're not taking the buses, <laughs> you know? And so um, the reason why I tell that story is that um, to me what's so interesting is I think a lot of times 
you know, as part of the kind of like rise of the sort of professional class and stuff like that, sometimes you have these moments of civil disobedience where people are really angry because people, you know, the system doesn't feel like they're working for them and they engage in civil disobedience, but then the hard and kind of like patient work of sort of then negotiating for power, we don't really have a lot of theory around that right now or we don't have a lot of examples of that. And so, you know, with the Montgomery bus boycott, it's like this very kind of concerted effort around civil disobedience and boycotting was going on. But during that time, there was a leadership, you know, Martin Luther King and sort of other leaders in the coalition of organizations that were running it that were in constant negotiation with the, um, the bus companies and the city leaders in Montgomery. You know, and I think the challenge that we see with a lot of the sort of situations with, with civil disobedience right now is that they can generate the civil disobedience, and sometimes they can generate over a long period of time, but then at a certain point, where does that negotiation for power happen? You know, and, and that's where I think some of the kind of work that we were talking about earlier in terms of the um, practices of self-governance, the sort of like knowing how do you sort of um, make a bid for the kinds of change that you want to see while staying rooted in the values and the constituency that you're, that you're trying to. And, and it's a really tricky thing. It's a balance between pragmatism and ideology and you know all these different things that are really hard to, to negotiate. Okay, so on that last point around power, one of, one of the observations looking at a lot of these large movements have been where did they go? Where did all of the Where's mobilizing the lead? Where, yeah. where was there a formal leadership structure or was there a strategy around formal power right. or institutional power or economic power? And so um, it's just interesting to think about you know, some of the things that have happened in the past couple of years, these massive marches right. um, um, and, and then where they stand. And so I wonder if you've looked at some of those and where you've been able to track are there instances where some of these larger social mobilization efforts have been able to shift from mobilization into organizing around real power, and when, where have they not? Yeah. So can you talk about any differences within some of these larger, even thinking globally? Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, I think there's, so there's definitely, um, you know, so just I just want to make kind of clarify one point before I get into that question that I was just thinking about when you're asking your question, which is, um, you know, so sometimes like people will like like around the women's march or sort of some of these like big kind of marches that are um, kind of protest events that we have, you know, people will say like, oh, you know, I don't, I just I just don't see like what the strategy is, you know, and so they don't seem like it's gonna it's gonna be going anywhere and. I, I just want to be clear, like, I'm not advocating that, like, you know, because, you know, the Jane Addams has this whole idea about the snare of preparation and how you don't want to get caught in the snare of preparation. And so I don't think that, like, movements need to have this sort of, like, articulated strategy of, like, you know, first we'll go to, you know, plan A, step one, we get 100,000 people out to the march, and then step two, we're going to do that, you know. And, like, that, that, it doesn't happen that way, you know. But it's more that... Um, it's more that if you have leaders who are, it's, I think it's more an argument about leadership than it is about sort of having like a stated strategy, right? If there are people who are leaders that are sort of accountable to, constitu to, to clear constituencies and that can speak for a group of people that are expressing outrage in some sense, right? Then that pathway for negotiation is a lot clearer than, than if you don't, you know? And I think the challenge that I see with some of the the movements that we have nowadays is that it's not clear, there's a sort of, you know, it's not clear kind of where that negotiation would occur, you know, like that of what we saw kind of historically. So that's sort of one thing. Um, on the question of, of, of movements that kind of change from sort of just sheer mobilizing to organizing, 
I've definitely seen that, it's really hard, but the place where I've seen it the most is when you have organizations or movements who feel like their back is up against a wall some, somehow, you know? And one of the things, you know, I think that like when I first started doing this work, I was like, oh, we're gonna like, I'm gonna like publish this study and then they're gonna like, we're gonna figure out what's right and then it's gonna change, right? And it's like <laughs> such a sort of like egocentric and naive way of like looking at the world, of course, you know? And of course it doesn't happen that way, right? And the reason why it doesn't happen is many reasons, part of many of which have to do with my own fault, but you know, part of which is that change is really hard, right? Like it's really hard to change an organization. It's really hard to change a campaign. It's really hard to shift someone's theory of change, right? And then, and then change all the structures and people that you have working for you as a result. And the places where I've seen it work the most is when you have organizations that feel the urgent need for status quo not being right, you know? And so in some ways that's why, like I think, that's why I think the accountability and constituency is most important, not because, I mean, there's a moral reason why you want to be accountable to a constituency, right? Because it's sort of, you're grounded in the people who, who, who you sort of speak for. But I think there's also just a purely trans strategic reason, which is where that's where your urgency comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, and so one of the places, for example, where I feel like I've seen that switch from mobilizing to organizing would be with like some of the immigrant rights groups, you know, where you have, you know, young people and families who feel like they're under threat and they have no choice but to figure out the problem, right? They can't say like, gosh, we tried this thing and it didn't work, like, oh well, you know, because it's like they, they feel, you know, like they, there's this urgent need and so it's like if something doesn't work, they're gonna try plan B and they're willing to sort of like try lots of different things because there's this urgent need to solve the problem, whatever that problem might be. And I think you see it on the right and the left, by the way, you know, so it's not just, it's not just on the left that we see that, but we see, you know, lots of, um, places where people that are the most grounded in this kind of urgency is where the um, is where that sort of shift from one strategy to another becomes visible. So on that last point, one yeah. of the questions really wanted to to probe into: Are there differences in terms of liberals and conservatives um, in terms of how organizing happens? Yeah, um, and if you could speak to that. Yeah. So um, actually, one thing I, I meant to say earlier that I forgot was um, so one. There's this one study that's not my own research. Um, this guy named Ziad Munson, um, who did this study of the pro-life movement where he was looking at um, people who are on the front lines of the pro-life movement, right? So these are people that run groups in their churches, they attend marches, they stand outside clinics, you know, like all the, um, the different things, all the sort of, you know, kind of very active roles in the pro-life movement. And he wrote this great book called The Making of Pro-Life Activists. I should be his agent too, because I talk about him all the time. And um, like I, I read that book when I was sort of first designing some of my own research, and it really shaped my thinking because there's a lot in the book that's really interesting. But one of the things that was most interesting that he found was he was trying to understand, you know, what was the sort of trajectory that got people to the place where they were kind of these like leading these leaders within within this movement. And a lot of the sort of research that we have is kind of cross-sectional. Like we just kind of look at people at a snapshot in time. And he wanted to understand like what the sort of pathway over time was that got them there. And one of the most interesting things that he finds is that something like 43% of the people who are on the front lines of the pro-life movement, um, when they first joined the movement, they were either pro-choice or they're indifferent to issues of, uh, of abortion, you know? which should be kind of shocking, right? Because if you're an environmental organization, who do you think you're gonna go out and recruit? Other environmentalists, right? If you're, uh, if you're a women's rights organization, who are you gonna go out and recruit? Like other women's rights activists, you know, sort of like people like that. And what he found was that 
you know, to be clear, so, you know, if 43% were, were not, then, like, that means, you know, 50, whatever, 7% of people were pro-life when they first joined the organization. But for 43% of people, one of two things happened. So either they were experiencing what, um, what we call, like, this moment of biographical availability. So maybe they had just moved to a new town. Maybe they just switched churches. Maybe it was a working woman who um, had her first child and became a stay-at-home mom. Maybe it's someone who just retired. But there was a sort of moment of change in their life when they were open to something new and they were kind of looking for new things, right? And or um, a friend invited them to an event, you know, hey, you know, after, after church on Sunday, like, would you, can you join me at this, like, meeting for, you know, for a group? And, um, and so they were brought in either through social connection or through this kind of, like, moment of transition. And what I was so interested in is when I read that is, like, First of all, it's amazing that you know, people's views can be so transformed. But what I want to know is, what happened at that meeting? Because <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that I'll do for my friends once because I feel bad saying no. But to sort of <laughs> devote my life to an issue because I felt bad saying no is like a pretty big lift. You know? And so what I want to know is, like, what happened at that meeting that then made that person say, you know, I don't even agree with what you stand for, but I want to come back. You know. And, um, and so, like, a lot of the work on the sort of the kind of organizing, mobilizing stuff that I've been talking about, I think, is trying to sort of, like, open up that black box of what happens in those meetings and those organizations that give people the, the experience. And, you know, and, and in, in the end, the answer is not, it's not that surprising, right? Like, what these meetings and what these organizations that are really good at this do is they speak to things that we all want, right? We, we want belonging, right? We want to feel like we're meaningful. You know, and so these organizations that are really good at this work are really good at sort of making people feel welcome and embedding them in a network of social relationships, at, help, at asking, giving them responsibility for work that feels like it actually matters. So you're not a cog in a machine. And so I feel like, you know, I can't miss that meeting on Thursday, even though I'd really rather stay home and watch Netflix, because <laughs> if, it won't, if it's not for me, then who's going to do it? You know, and so, so you, you start to become an actual agent that has real human capacities as opposed to just an interchangeable cog. And so, um, oh, anyways, this I remember. So the question was, is it, is it different on the right or the left? So I think that we see, and we see a lot of examples of organizations on the right that have historically been really good at doing that kind of work, at sort of like knitting together those, um, those social relationships. Like another stat that I throw out a lot is that, um, you know, so I grew up in Texas, big gun culture in Texas, and um, there are more gun clubs and gun shops in the United States than there are grocery stores, right? So if you think about, like, where does the NRA have a, like, there's all sorts of reasons why the NRA is so powerful, you know, but part of it is that there's this, like, there are these, like, sites of civic life, right, where people come together to join with others, you know? And so um, I think the, that, that historic, in, in the past, like in the most recent decades, um, what we've seen is that you've seen more of those spaces on the right than you have on the left, you know, in terms of the sort of like, the kind of interstitial sort of relational work that, that exists, churches, gun clubs, you know, like that kind of thing. We're, we're beginning to see more of it on the left, but on the left, it's, um, the left is grappling with issues of difference and the sort of opening of a lot of new voices into the political system in a way that makes it much more complex. And so I think that um, the challenge is figuring out how to, in my mind, the challenge is how do we build the sort of relationships that ground people in a willingness to sort of navigate all the challenges that, that we have. And so in some ways it's like, where are the spaces where people come together to do that work?
So that, that actually ties into one of the questions here uh, that was trying to get at, okay, so we have these small groups of, of intense, intense engagement, really high engagement, relationship building. Yep. How does that relate to scale? So mobilizing, you can get scale, but the sustainability is questionable. Yep. Usually the research says it doesn't sustain <laughs> yeah. um, or it morphs into something else. Um, so have you seen instances, is there another pathway, I guess, to scale um, is, is maybe another way to ask the question in terms yeah. of, of sustained change? Yeah, so I mean, so the organizations that I've studied that have been successful are, are really the ones that sort of do the mobilizing and the organizing, right? So the mobilizing helps kind of build the breadth and the organizing kind of uh, builds that depth. But the challenge of how you do the organizing at scale is really one about how you create structures. You know, so it's sort of like if I'm, um, you know, if I am um, someone who's doing the work of organizing, right, then I might have four leaders that I'm working with, but each of those four leaders then has their own four leaders, and each of those four leaders has their own four leaders, and you, know, you can kind of imagine that pretty soon it begins to grow exponentially, right? But that only works if we have sort of the structures that enable all those kind of expanding layers of people to... Um, you know, kind of like, like all the ships have to be sailing in the right same direction, <laughs> you know? The challenge of sort of building that out is that you start to get, you know, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? But, you know, people start to kind of go off in all their own directions because you don't have that sort of shared, that shared sense of, of where we're moving together. Um, and so, you know, it's like the, fig the, you know, the kind of strategic challenge for the leadership is how you build structures and engage people in kind of like a shared agenda um, that continues to sort of chunk out the work in ever expanding circles. Um, and then, you know, at the end of those circles, it's like you just have people who are just like sheer, mo you're always gonna have people who just like show up for the big event or show up on election day or something like that and don't, and don't do anything else. And that's, that's, you know, that mobilizing is part of any movement. But what sustains it over time are these sort of, you know, what we call, think of as like snowflakes that can kind of ex can expand and contract, you know, as the, as a sort of political circumstances um, demand. Great, thank you. So a couple of research-oriented questions. Yeah. So um, in your research, you talk a lot about building relationships. And yeah. so people are interested, or someone is interested in, how you establish the trust so that, that from a research perspective, they let you in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's a good question. So I, um, I worked in capital D democratic politics before I went to grad school. So um, I, you know, after college, I went and I worked in politics for a few years. And then I was working on a campaign that lost. And I was like, I lost my job because the campaign lost. And so I didn't know what to do. So I decided to go to grad school. And um, I think I always thought that I was going to um, go to grad. You know, and honestly, the reason I chose a PhD program was because I didn't have to take on debt. You know, because you know, like if I did a master's program, I'd have to take on debt. But if I did a PhD program, they would like pay my way. And um, so I, 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 but I, I tell that story by way of saying that like I always thought that I was going to go to grad school and then I was going to come back into politics. So I sort of maintained a lot of the relationships that I had um, with people who were involved in, in political life. And, um, and so that's like early on in my career when I was beginning to do this research, you know, a lot of it was not necessarily cold calling, but asking people who I knew to kind of make an introduction so that I wasn't just some, some stranger. Um, what I will say, though, is like over time now, you know, I do a lot of work that's in partnership with a lot of um, organizations. And um, what I have found is that 
the organizations are actually hungry for researchers who are willing to work in, this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier, but who are willing to work in authentic partnership with them to sort of co-create learning, you know? And I think that there's so many researchers on my end, like on the end of social science, that think about partnerships with community-based organizations in very tactical or transactional ways. Like, I will, you know, I'm gonna partner with you, you give me your data, I'm gonna write you a report, and then we're done, <laughs> you know? And, um, and that's kind of dissatisfying for both sides in the end, and you don't really find those partnerships. And so, what I find is that, in the early on, it was about having the introduction and the relationships for sure, but now it's like, I have so many organizations who come to my lab, and they're like, can we please, you know, we want someone who can sort of like think with us on this question, you know, and that in that process of thinking together, then we sort of, you know, develop research projects. And so I only wish that there were more researchers out there that, you know, that are doing that kind of work. And I think there's a real appetite for it if there were, so. Oh, that may be good for the Humphrey School. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a couple other questions in just different directions. And so these get a little bit political. Sure. Um, um, and, and I'll try to group these together a little bit. One question really is around sort of forces or agendas that are really pushing for divisions and what your perspective is. Are there, are there in your, from your point of view, specific forces that are pushing to divide us? Um, and if so, what would be the root of, 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 of the interest of, of these forces? So very philosophical. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Um. So I'm an optimist, <laughs> if it's not, you know, and, um, but I also, you know, I do think that um, there are ways, so, okay, I do think that power, political power is a real thing, right, and that certain groups have more power than others, and that's always been a reality in political life, right, and that there are definitely ways in which, um, you know, the number one most likely outcome of any change campaign is, failure, <laughs> right? The, one, the number one most likely outcome of any change campaign is status quo, right? There's a ton of data that sort of shows that, right? And so what that means is that if you're on the side of status quo, then division can be a very strategic thing to do, right? Because part of the ways in which you sort of squelch, um, you know, squelch the possibility of change is by dividing, you know, the forces that are trying to sort of um, make change. So, you know, I. I think historically throughout time we've always seen that division can be a useful strategy because of the power of status quo, right? And because status quo has time on its side, you know, that um, status quo just has to wait for sort of whatever the change effort is to kind of like die down over time. That's the 390 days that the Montgomery bus boycott, right? <laughs> they had to really sustain that for a long time before they were willing to sort of make change. So. Um, so I think there's definitely an interest in protecting status quo for sure. Now, the optimist in me also believes, so I do believe that that's true, but I also believe that um, I think, I, I, <laughs> I have like a, you know, I think people are inherently good, you know? I think that um, we're in a moment of tremendous political and economic and demographic uncertainty in this world, and I think that change is really, it can be very fear-inducing and the sort of promise of civic institutions is to be able to sort of help people find ways to choose hope over fear in their response to kind of change, you know? So I think that the sort of possibility for that is there, but it's the, it's the work of people who build organizations to 
to build the organizations that help people choose that as opposed to just kind of re retreating into fear. That's an easier response in a lot of ways. So as you talk to me and, and others here who all of us probably have membership or association with different types of power and different types of people, what are questions that you think would be helpful for us to take on as we, if we say we want to be on the side of hope and we want to help with um, uh, carrying forward uh, yeah. a new day? What, what can we do and what are, what are some new questions or new frames that can challenge you know, how we think about organizing or ourselves or our time and, right. and structure? So. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So there's a, um, there's a woman named Frances Scott Willard who is a, um, she was a, I don't know if anyone's heard of, she was involved in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And so she um, was one of the people who um, was involved in the movement in the early 20th century to um, pass the um, Constitutional Amendment for Prohibition, which I'm not advocating, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and she was actually, she originally got into this work because she was, um, she was really interested in um, women's rights. And she um, saw domestic violence as a real problem in the late 19th century. And she looked around and she saw all these women that were sort of victims of domestic violence. And she said, she thought, like, what's the problem? And she thought, well, you know, what's happening is that a lot of men are going out to the bar and they get drunk and they come home and they beat their wives, you know? So if we want to get to the root cause of domestic violence, what we need to do is ban alcohol. So that's where that campaign sort of really started. And what's interesting is the way that she organized around the campaign is she traveled all over the U.S. She traveled like over 100,000 miles by train, <laughs> right, um, in a year. And she would go around to communities and she would try to recruit people to the cause. And if she was recruiting you to the cause, the first thing she would ask you to do is take a personal pledge to swear off alcohol, right? So the first is the sort of like your, your own values, right? But the second thing that she would ask you to do, and this is what I think is most interesting, is she'd ask you to join with other people in your community to try to shut down a bar in your town. It didn't matter if you won or you lost, but she wanted you to have the experience of shutting down that bar, and then once you guys did that, then she would invite you to join the national movement. Right, so why are they trying to shut down bars? Because the way you pass a constitutional amendment has nothing to do with whether or not there are bars open in your town, right? You pass a constitutional amendment by getting you know, three quarters of the states to ratify this change. I mean, there's sort of like a whole kind of constitutional procedure around which sort of constitutional amendments are passed. But why did she want people to do that? Because she wanted people before they joined the national movement to have the experience of collective action, right? She wanted people to have the experience of what they could do if they joined with others, you know, so that people would realize in their bones, right, what they could achieve if they worked with others versus working alone, right? And those are the kind of people that she wanted to recruit into the moment, into the movement. And so for me, when I think about that story from, you know, I always think as we look around in 21st century or 2019 America, like, what's the Joe's bar? You know, where's the place there where we come, where, where we all have the experience of how and why we need each other? You know, and I think there are a lot of places where that could happen, but there's a lot of opportunity to sort of make it happen more. And so, to, you know, if I was, you know, as I think about this question that you pose, it's kind of the challenges is like, what's the Joe's bar? You know, how do you identify what that is where people have the experience of, of why we need each other? Great. So, are we are we on time or? So, so this is my first time. So, yeah. Um, I just want to make sure I'm doing the time thing right. So, so I will I will just do maybe one or two more questions and then we'll we'll wrap up and and these are sort of a little bit more again on the political. So mm -hmm. just. Um, 
so one is a very explicit sort of the question that everybody's talking about now is the 2020 presidential election. Mm -hmm. And so given your proximity to um, electoral politics, particularly um, with presidential elections, the question is, um, in 2008, America elected a former community organizer. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can, you can decide to, to answer this or okay. not, but <laughs> who do you see among the 2020 candidates that most reminds you of a community organizer? So you, you can you can also decline for for um, for a number of reasons, but um, I I did want to try to get to yeah, all the yeah. questions. Well, given the ninety five people who are running, it's like kind of I'm trying to like go through the I list know. right now. So um, or we can speak more broadly if if, if this yeah, is yeah. if it's better. <laughs> so I mean I don't I don't know that there's any one candidate who jumps out. I will say I, I will say that um, what I've been really interested in is I've been interested in kind of um, following who the different can candidate who the campaigns are hiring to run their field program. You know because I think there's um, you know, a part of what I study is sort of like field programs and electoral campaigns, and what we've seen um, is a lot of innovation over the past like 20 years and how, you know, so people used to, field programs used to be the entire campaign before we had mass communications, right? And then mm -hmm. television comes along in the mid-20th century, and so then campaigns kind of moved to focusing a lot more on TV and, and mass communications and things like that. And then around the sort of early 21st century, around the early 2000s, is when we began to sort of see the resurgence of field camp people paying attention to field campaigns again. Um, a lot of it started with um, Howard Dean in 2004. Also in 2004, um, Karl Rove organized a three-day, like, one-million-person volunteer operation called Stomp that was getting out the vote for um, George Bush. You know, and so all of a sudden people are like, whoa, like, field might actually matter, right? And then <laughs> Obama comes along in 2008, right? He hires people like Alex Waters, and they run, they run this campaign that sort of innovates you know, on a lot of different field models. And then since then, we've seen this kind of progressive set of different kind of innovations, the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, Beto's campaign in Texas, you know, that are sort of like trying out different ways of sort of blending new technologies with existing methods to sort of build out field. And so I feel like we're in this moment right now where there's a lot of flux and not a lot of agreement necessarily on exactly what the right strategy is for building a field campaign. And so it's been interesting to me is to see who the campaigns are hiring as kind mm -hmm. of an indication of where, you know, what they think the sort of like focus is. And so I will say that, um, you know, some candidates like and, and I, I'm just saying this because this is what's coming to mind right now. So not to say that this is the only <laughs> campaign that's done this, but like I know that like Kamala Harris, for example, has hired like a former Obama field person to run, you know, to run her campaign. Um, you know, Bernie actually has like hired some of his own team back, you know, to 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 run that campaign. And so, you know, I think that we're going to see lots of really interesting innovations in, in 2020. Um, I think the data are still out on exactly what's the sort of um, you know, what's the right quote-unquote um, method. Um, I think none of them are going to be probably as rooted in, in community organizing as, as the Obama campaign was, but that's because I think the conversation has shifted. It's not necessarily sort of a, uh, a um, uh, like, a, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a good or bad, it's not like a value statement on, on that particular um, approach. So. Great. Well, with that, I think I will um, invite up, we have a uh, Kate Samino uh, here from the school who will make a, a couple of comments before we close. Thank you, Kara Carlisle and Professor Harihan for this really great conversation today. Uh, it was um, so interesting and if you have not yet had enough of this and would like to go a little deeper, um, Professor Han's book is for sale just outside the doors here upon your departure. Um, be sure to check that out. Uh, before we wrap today, I want to 
Um, thank you for coming, and many of you know this is part of our series here at the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School. We do sometimes over two dozen a year, thanks to our great um, team, and these are on all different kinds of topics across the political spectrum, uh, and if this is the kind of thing that you value, having different perspectives, different political views brought into the mix, a chance to ask questions and do some deep thinking um, on these topics, we invite you to consider joining us as one of our um, donor circle, I want to thank, we've got our little card here if you check out on your program. These are a few of our major donors that support our programming and make this possible, but we welcome um, folks to join our donor circle at any level, individual to organizational, and a uh, gift to our center is a gift to the University of Minnesota Foundation, so that is a charitable contribution. So I just wanted to let you know if you have any questions about that, please feel free to um, look me up. My contact information is on here. And um, I think that that wraps it up today. I want to thank Kara Carlisle and Professor Hari Han for a great conversation. Thank you all for yeah. coming.